Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you all for coming to our event, Implications of the U.S.-North Korea Summit. We are trying something new today. We're giving a live podcast. We're doing a live podcast recording with our distinguished panel here. So you all will be a part of making history at CSIS. I will leave it to our chief communication communications officer, Andrew Schwartz, and the host of the podcast to explain a little bit more shortly. But before we begin, I would like to say a few words about safety at CSIS. We feel very secure in our building, but we have a duty to prepare for any potential incidents. In the case of an emergency, please exit the building using the emergency exits and gather in front of the National Geographic Museum on M Street. I will serve as your safety responsible officer. Please follow my instructions should the need arise. Um, thank you very much. We'll just move this podium and off to you, Andrew. Welcome to everybody. Uh, thanks for being here at CSIS. We are doing something, as Lisa said, a little bit different today. We're taping live our podcast, The Impossible State. Um, usually Victor and Sue and me and Mike Green and others are taping The Impossible mm -hmm. State. Sometimes we have guests like Ambassador Vershbau or the great Washington Post reporter Dave Nakamura, my, my good friend who you know, I desperately want to see him cover sports again yeah. one day because <laughs> I love reading him when he covers sports. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we taped this down in our studio downstairs, but now uh, by the magic of having our producer, Yumi Araki here, that's Yumi over there. Uh, for those of you who can't see her on the podcast, she's sitting off to our left. Um, we, we're, gonna, we're able to, to do the podcast live in front of you, and we're really lucky today to have with us uh, Ambassador Sandy uh, Verspau, uh, who's a distinguished fellow at the Skokoff Center for uh, strategy and security at uh, at the Atlantic Council. He's, of course, former, among many other things, he was former U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Korea. Uh, we have Dr. Sumi Terry, uh, senior fellow at CSIS Korea Chair. Uh, she's former senior analyst at the CIA, former National Security Council uh, staffer. As I mentioned before, Mr. Dave Nakamura, who's a White House correspondent for the Washington Post. And, of course, Dr. Victor Cha, who's our senior advisor and Korea Chair here at CSIS. Um, Victor, let's start with the news. We, we had a little bit of news this week. It started off Tuesday night. Um, I got a call from Victor uh, late in the afternoon Tuesday. He was, Victor was rushing around, I was rushing around, and uh, there was some news that we had some images that showed a bit of activity uh, in North Korea. What was that? Yeah, so um, we, uh, we found that there were images, commercial satellite images, of the Sohei uh, satellite launch facility, right, uh, where there was activity there, particularly in three areas of the launch facility, uh, that uh, was significant and notable activity, given that the facility had been pretty much dormant after some initial disassembly following the Singapore summit. So, our the initial reaction, I think, among not just us but other analysts who looked at this, was that. You know, these were deliberate efforts by North Korea in response to the inconclusive results of the Hanoi summit um, um, to send a message, really, to, the, to President Trump and the world. Now, this morning, though, we got, this morning, and today is, is Thursday morning, we got a new imagery report. And what did that show? And why, why is this site so important? Yes, yeah, so, um, so we had new imagery. I'm going to put it up on the screen here today. So we had new imagery from yesterday. For those of you listening to the podcast, you can't see it 
in front of you because you're listening, but you can tune in, you can look at Beyond Parallel, our website, or CSIS.org, it's both there. Yeah, so this so is- both um, places. In both places, yeah. So this is imagery from March 6th of the SOHE satellite launch facility that shows essentially that they have, since the last images on March, March 2nd, they have essentially continued activity at both the vertical engine test stand, uh, the, rail in, the rail transport infrastructure, uh, and some of the oxidizing build, roofs of the oxidizing buildings. To make it very um, simple, they essentially reassembled all the things they disassembled after Singapore. And of course, we'll watch the site for more activity, but what we refer to it as their snapback. They basically snapped back from the initial actions they took uh, after Singapore uh, in terms of disassembly of the SOHE satellite launch facility. For those who aren't familiar with this, this is, a, this is not a facility, a, it is not a ballistic missile facility, it's a facility from which they launch civilian space launch vehicles to put satellites into orbit. Um, it came most in the news, I think, in 2012 when they uh, launched the rocket directly after um, concluding negotiations with the Obama administration on something called the Leap Day deal that eventually fell through. <coughs> um, but it's still significant from a strategic perspective because uh, under UN Security Council Resolution 2087, North Korea is not permitted to launch um, satellites because uh, they are using ballistic missile technology to put those uh, payload vehicles into orbit. Um, so uh, that makes this a significant site for us to watch in terms of the missile threat. So Ambassador Virchbaugh, could you tell us, give us your reaction to this. What is, why is this so significant? What does this mean for the Trump administration and their negotiations with the North Koreans? Yeah. Well, it, at this point we're not sure whether this is a significant event or just kind of the North Koreans letting off a little steam after the disappointment at the Hanoi summit. Uh, it does look like it happened after the summit, so you know it's not an accident. But on the other hand, uh, we don't yet have any signals from the North that they're breaking off talks. Uh, they actually accentuated the positive at the end of the uh, summit meeting, even though they were quite surprised that the president walked away from the table. Uh, so I think it's uh, too early to draw any conclusions about whether this spells the end of negotiations or this is just kind of some, some uh, maneuvering that uh, doesn't foreclose the possibility that talks will resume in the next few weeks. Sue, what's your reaction to this? And then I want to get to Dave, because Dave was actually traveling with President Trump and, and in Hanoi for the summit. I think for now, I think Ambassador is absolutely right. I, I don't think it's, it's, it's necessarily North Korea's return to provocations. I don't think this should be taken as a sign that they're going to return to missile testing or nuclear testing. I think right now it's a signal they're trying to send uh, to, to show their resolve. Um, but it's not only a signal they're trying to send to President Trump as a pressure tactic. I think it's a signal they're also trying to send to President Moon Jae-in. Uh, this is something that they've agreed to with South Koreans also at the Pyongyang Declaration. So that's getting the South Korea to sort of say, hey, you need to do either intermediary role and fix this, or trying to pressure the South Koreans to sort of get off uh, and, 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 and for South Koreans to improve the inter-Korea relations and move forward on inter-Korea projects, like reopening Kaesong and whatnot. So I think North Koreans are also trying to press on the South Koreans. And it'll be interesting to see what South Korea's response is going to be, because this is going to put President Moon Jae-in in a very difficult situation. Dave, you, 
many of the people don't know this, but Dave is the first U.S. journalist to act, actually ask Kim Jong-un a question. <laughs> and get an answer. And get an answer. And be in return to tell about it. So, about so it. okay, H how tall is he? You know, he was sitting down two out of the three times that I saw him. Yeah. And the third time he was obscured by Trump a little bit because he was across a pool at the Metropole Hotel walking uh, on a sort of stage photo op, uh, the leader's walk. Uh, which they met Pompeii. It's a little hard to tell. He seemed to have a healthy glow, though, on TV. He looked like he had had, you know, facial, you know, he's ready when for you the have, When you have that distinct of a look, maybe him and Trump, I mean, they look like they do in person, yeah. right? I mean, you yeah. know, and it, a little bit cartoon character-like in that you see, you know, so much on TV or movies or uh, caricatures. And so when you're in the room um, the first time, you know, we were, there was a lot of anticipation for us in the press pool, 13 uh, White House reporters, uh, and then some North Korea state media, uh, all dressed in the same outfit with their... Um, lapel pins featuring the, uh, the dear leader and the great leader, uh, they all came in. They didn't shout any questions, by the way, the North Korea. No, um, I guess not. Yeah. But when we were let in, you know, it's a, it's, a mad, it's a mad scramble for positioning and trying to get a scene. I had to move over. I almost knocked over a North Korean um, a mounted uh, video camera. I didn't want to do that, so I moved over a little bit. But when you're, then you sort of see the leaders right there. They're just already in the, in the space, and uh, it's a little bit jarring. Um, and then you're trying to figure out, like, how do I get a question in? When is my moment? I waited until you know, Trump took a question, and when he stopped talking, I figured that was the moment. And, so what, and what did you ask him? I asked him, uh, I wrote a story about this, like, what do you ask a dictator, you know, Right. What's, what's your moment? You know, is it the human rights? You get right to it. You know, a lot of the questions we shout, sometimes you have to think about public perception, especially if you don't think you're going to get an answer. What are you what you're spending your time asking? Uh, we went through all of that. Um, you know, there was a sense that, you know, for Trump, you know, he had gotten angry the day before about some Michael Cohen questions yelled at the dinner uh, or the, before the dinner. Um, right, he actually yeah, kicked some people out. Some reporters out. So we discussed yeah. Trump. Uh, he was going to have a news conference. So we figured he could take some offbeat questions there, off-topic off questions. So we would ask him about the state of the summit, and I figured that would be smart for Kim, too. You know? So I basically said, you know, Chairman Kim, do you, are you confident you're going to get a deal? And he looked at me, and I, as I wrote my sort of piece, I give a little thumbs up, not to establish any kind of like camaraderie, but to say that, you know, do you feel good? Do you feel good about a deal? There's a language barrier. And then he, I noticed in the replay of the video that uh, Trump's uh, interpreter leans over across the table and interpreted the question into Korean, and I knew I had a, we had a shot in the answer. And Kim, you know, to his credit, gave us an answer. And What's it like being in that situation, covering uh, a historic summit, pretty surreal summit, as, yep. you, as you alluded to, um, and, and what was the president's mood like during you know, that? Um, a lot I've, of people paid a lot of yeah. attention to that because you know, the big elephant in the room was the Michael Cohen's yes. hearing was going on at right. the same time. Here in the United States, we saw split screens yep. of you know, President Trump and Kim Jong-un uh, on one side of the screen and Michael Cohen testifying yep. on Capitol Hill on the other side of the screen. Right. The president likes the, he likes deals, but he likes the show, too. Yeah. The big moment, the big reveal. And he had built up a lot of anticipation for the Singapore summit, and I think he felt that went well. And he was able to tout, it was a small four-paragraph agreement, but he was able to show, and the big signature, uh, that moment he liked, and uh, we were on, you know, basically on an island in Southeast Asia, uh, and he had this sort of a command of the media there and really the whole world. So he was trying to repeat that. Uh, there was clearly pressure in the White House knew it, and the president knew it to get a better, more of a deal. I mean, those specifics, and that's where we saw a breakdown. But uh, in terms of the atmosphere, I think um, the, the White House was certainly concerned about how the president would react in real time to Michael Cohen, and we saw it play out. Uh, basically, as you would suspect, the president had a bilateral meeting with the Vietnamese. Um, there were a couple different meetings there. And as soon as he got back to the hotel for some downtime before the sort of meet and greet with Kim Jong-un the day before the main, main day of the summit, uh, the president started tweeting, and he tweeted about, uh, you know, uh, Danang Dick Blumenthal, you know, as he says degradingly, 
uh, about the senator. Uh, and then he also started tweeting about Michael Cohen. Uh, and so um, you could see where his attention was. We don't know how late the president stayed up the night before. There were some reports that he may have been you know, communicating with people back in Washington during the hearing. So um, we don't know how well rested or focused he was really on um, you know, the, the big day, which uh, you know, was that Thursday. Safe to say he was in executive time. He was in <laughs> lots of executive time, uh, always built in. Right. Didn't President Trump tweet, though, that something about the timing he said it was a bad timing to yes. hoard it together. Yeah. And by the way, maybe that contributed to the walk. He did that, he did that mean, after so we got back. Yeah. He himself hinted at that there was a little revisionist history, though. I he think. should thank Michael Cohen in that case because walking was the right thing to do. <laughs> right. yeah, he did the right thing. <laughs> maybe it was. But it seemed a little revisionist by the president to, to say to blame. Uh, he's trying to put a lot of uh, blame on Democrats right now. I wrote a, a story today talking about both on immigration and uh, on trade. The president's gotten some, some rough news uh, this week about uh, the numbers at the border and the trade, trade deficit, deficit growing, uh, but also in North Korea that he's tried to sort of uh, hoist, some of the, hoist some of the blame onto Democrats in every case. So um, before we continue, um, you all have note cards on your seats. And the way we're going to take some questions during the podcast from the audience is if you could write down on your questions, they'll be collected by our staff. And We'll get to a few of them um, as we go along. Um, I know some of you are going to want to have questions. Um, Victor, let me ask you this. President Trump still seems to expect that his personal relationship with Kim is going to yield results in these negotiations, despite what happened in Hanoi. Is that a smart strategy, or should he empower his people, Pompeo, Steve Began? What should he do now? Well, I, you know, I don't know if it's a smart strategy, but it's his strategy. Yeah. Right? And... Um, He's been very consistent in defending the North Korean leader's intentions uh, uh, you know, since Singapore. Um, I thought that his uh, response to the reports about Sohei uh, yesterday were uncharacteristically sober. Right? He said that you know, he hopes it's not true. You know, he doesn't think it's true, but we'll, we'll see. It was, very, it was a very sober. It wasn't sort of a he mad said he, he would be disappointed. He would be disappointed. And I, and, and, uh, when we had, uh, we had an imagery report about some of the operational uh, mis uh, missile bases that were, um, that were undisclosed by North Korea, he immediately tweeted angrily that that's just all fake news. This time he was like, you know, he didn't, didn't deny yeah. that this could be happening. So, so to be clear, when we first, when we reported uh, a couple months ago that there were up to 20 operational uh, missile sites that were undeclared, um, David Sanger of the New York Times reported it. And President Trump tweeted that David Sanger's article was fake news. He did not say CSIS's <laughs> images were fake news. <laughs> yeah. So just to clarify. Right. But, but in this case, he, he didn't dispute either the reporting. Uh, Andrea Mitchell report, of NBC reported it first. Um, and he didn't, he didn't dispute, uh, of course, our research here at CSIS. Yeah. No, I don't. I think, yeah, and, so, and so the pictures themselves don't lie, except if you're in North Korea where they airbrush, they airbrush stuff out. But... Um, so I think in terms of where we go from here, yes, I mean, you know, one option is to empower um, the working level people to try to take what was left from Hanoi and either chop it up into smaller pieces, right? their, whether it's their demand for the lifting of five UN Security Council resolution sanctions from 2016-2017, or whether it's our demand for Yongbyon Plus. Right? You can chop them up to smaller pieces or you can try to get the bigger deal. In either case, that really just takes us back to the sort of negotiations that we have been in for the past 25 years. So that is not a particularly good outcome. The other possibility, and I don't discount this at all, is that things could get worse before they get better. And that is because I think one of the 
lessons, I think, that both sides took away from the summit um, is that pressure works. Right? From our perspective, the fact that the North Koreans fingered these five UN Security Council resolutions is clearly showing that they see that pressure as troublesome. Right? And then you had um, Ambassador Bolton out there saying, hey, we could increase pressure. And then you see, in terms of our imagery, that the North Korean response is to go back to some of these sites that they know bother us, whether it's a nuclear test site or the Sohei satellites launch site, and say, look, we're going to start doing some stuff here, too. So I feel like that's certainly one of the lessons that they both walked away from this meeting with. And, um, and so you know, I worry a little bit that this could get worse before it gets better, be, because both sides want to try to figure out how to get to the other, the other side back to the table. And they may say pressure is the way to do that. So. Sue, what do you think? No, so I think one takeaway from this summit is that North, North Koreans care about sanctions relief. We, we put in there, we were ready to give peace declaration. We were ready to open a liaison office. We were, right, so, but it fell apart. And so over sanctions, so I think sanctions advocate has a point here that they care about sanctions relief. So the concern is, um, but that's not where we are, right? Exactly what Victor said. I don't think there's any kind of, uh, we're not in the US government. There's no one that supports sanctions relief at this point. So if that's what they care about and they're not, they're not going to be happy with just walking away with the liaison office or peace declaration. What's the give? How do we bridge this gap? I, I think that's going to be a problem. Um, and, but anyway, that, I, I do think that's, that's one main takeaway was that they, we at least saw what each other wanted. And clearly for North Koreans, sanctions relief is a top priority. Ambassador. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, we, we did learn that the sanctions are really hurting. The North Korean economy is, uh, is in really bad shape. And uh, at the same time, you know, I don't think we've been consistent in applying pressure, particularly after Singapore. The president declared the threat has, is gone. And then he was saying in the lead up to Hanoi that I'm in no hurry. It kind of gave the impression both to the North Koreans and to China and others who, who we need to enforce those sanctions even more harshly, uh, that he, they could let the pressure off. So, I hope some lessons are learned about the need to be a bit more consistent and send a consistent message uh, to the North. I also think that uh, on the personal diplomacy, I mean, I think the two leaders have learned that love does not conquer all <laughs> and that uh, you, you do have to focus on the details. You do need to have a real process. So while there's the risk that we get back into the same kind of uh, whack-a-mole, unsatisfactory uh, uh, results that we achieved uh, under previous administrations, uh, I think it's unavoidable to go back and try to hammer out a much more coherent, comprehensive deal, one that I think uh, shows the North Koreans that they can get the sanctions relief that they want, but they're going to have to do more. They have to pay for it uh, through much more serious steps on denuclearization. Just closing Yongbyon, which doesn't even capture the covert or clandestine production facilities, and not touching the missiles, the warheads, the things that actually threaten the South and threaten us, uh, is not going to be enough. Dave, you, what are your sources telling you in the aftermath of this? Is, is there still, is it all love? You know, what, you what's know, going on? What's interesting is before the summit, um, we wrote about the exchange of the love notes and the match notes between the president and Kim, and the president liked to show them off in various meetings. Yeah. We tried to have uh, our photographers getting a shot of what was actually written in those. Um, but um, we did do some reporting, and uh, you know, we wrote a story, for example, about Steve Began's role. And you know, what we were told by the White, we had heard that um, you know John Bolton was certainly concerned that Began was and others were pushing too quick, quickly, or 
seemed too eager for a deal and might give up too much. But uh, we were told by folks in the White House that it wasn't just Bolton. It was an interesting message uh, that it, there was other concerns, concerns in commerce about the sanctions, concern at the Pentagon over the military drills and other matters, and uh, even concern among, from Pompeo. And so when you saw the president surrounded by that group, including Bolton at one of the bilat uh, extended uh, bilateral meetings, uh, it seemed like that, you know, that sort of view won out. And afterward, though, it's interesting because um, you know, Pompeo gave an interview the other day, I think to USA Today, where he seemed surprised that North Korea had kind of drawn a, a tough line uh, about their negotiating uh, position in, you know, in public uh, and their public comments. So, you know, but in that interview, I think, and, and other places, Pompeo has said he's trying to get a team over there fairly soon. Um, so it's interesting that, uh, but I think for the president's point of view, he, he's made clear that if, and he said this at the news conference afterward, that if North Korea holds off on the missile and nuclear testing, and rebuilding a site is one thing, but if they don't do anything provocative, he seems willing to sort of uh, continue this negotiation and uh, and ride this out because he's put so much into it. But that, but that too emphasizes how he's kind of sent mixed signals because yeah. just stopping testing yep. doesn't actually reduce the real threat. Right. Uh, and of course, unilaterally giving up those exercises, which really do yep. harm the readiness of U.S. and Korean forces, I mean, do you think that is, he is, is a premature stopping, concession. Do you think that he thinks stopping testing reduces the threat? Oh, well, he definitely thinks so, and it does reduce the threat to some degree because yeah. the North Koreans have not perfected ICBMs. They've only had a couple of right. tests. So, yes, we're better off that they continue this moratorium, but it doesn't solve the fundamental problem of a, of a major nuclear uh, weapon state emerging on the Korean Peninsula that we want to uh, reverse. I think it's an argument, too, the president can make to the public. We saw missiles in 2017 flying over Japan and um, reports of nuclear tests. We recall the, uh, the summit with Prime Minister Abe at Mar-a-Lago where they were using you know, cell phone flashlights to sort of go over public statements in the middle of a public dining room, which got a lot of attention. Um, you know, so the president, and the president built up a lot of his campaign against this pressure campaign on North Korea, uh, saying how flagrant and, and provocative they had been right at the UN and at, in South Korea and at the, uh, at the State of the Union last year. So the president is now saying that's an achievement. They're not doing that anymore. And as long as they don't, I think he can, say, can continue to try to argue, and he has been, um, that this is something he's brought about and that he's reduced tensions. But that, that, you know, that, that, I think that's true. It doesn't, no testing doesn't invoke the political crisis that comes with a test. But that is, that is a situation where time is on the North Korean side. Because even though they're not testing, they're still producing more mm -hmm. fissile exactly. material, more weapons. You know, there's talk about how they produced um, more material between Singapore and Hanoi, right? So they're continuing to increase, you know, to increase their stockpiles. And on the testing, I, you know, so our, the work we've done here at CSIS shows that um, it's not just under the Trump administration. Anytime the United States is at the table talking to North Korea, the North Koreans don't test. They don't do major WMD tests. This is historic. Uh, historic for 25 years. you negotiated. Yeah, for 25 years, uh, that's been the case. So, um, so I, I know the president likes to say it's a big accomplishment of the policy, but it's actually just data. It's just an empirical fact that that's the case. But, but again, I think this goes back to the, and I don't say this as, I don't say this with a great deal of excitement. I say it with a great deal of regret is that, so what, what I'm worried about is that, um, again, that, we walk away from this meeting understanding now very clearly what the North Koreans want. As Sue said, they don't want a peace regime, peace declaration, and they don't want liaison offices. The South Koreans may want that, but the North Koreans, they want sanctions relief and they want these five sanctions, which for the United States just re reinforces to us that this is really good leverage that we should, that we could, we should use, that we could supplement you know, to, try to, get, to try to get what, what we want. And I think 
the North Koreans walk away from this meeting and they, and they feel like, well, you know, we've tried, we put our dear leader with the, with the U.S. president, he hasn't moved on any of these issues, you know, we may have to just go back to using pressure again to, to try to soften up the Americans. So, you know, I'm not predicting that we're going back to 2017, but I, I do worry that, uh, that we may see a, a bad cycle. And that would not be unusual in the history of this negotiation crisis, crisis that we then cycle back from engagement to, you know, to, to a little bit of confrontation before we cycle back to the diplomacy. Yeah, but let's hope that these two guys, you know, their first date went better than their second date, but let's hope that they're not going to break off the relationship. Yeah. yeah. So you always say they, the North Koreans never do anything for free. No, they, no, they don't. Um, I mean, <laughs> Victor knows this better than anybody. He's not a cheap date. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Um, but what I do wonder about is um, just going forward, I, I have a little bit of a different take. I, I just, you know, it would be very foolish for Kim Jong-un to return to provocations, right, in the form of missile and nuclear tests. Because all Kim has to do is kind of sit tight and continually engage in diplomacy and symmetry, continue to meet with Xi Jinping, go, you know, meet with President Moon and President Putin and what have you. And, you know, he's on this path of normalizing himself. All of a sudden, he looks like a normal leader, right? We forget about who he really is, like a guy who killed his brother and uncle and so on. So all he has to do is kind of sit tight and not test continue to build a nuclear missile program that doesn't really bother President Trump as long as it's not in your face testing, and then sort of run out the clock on this administration. Um, so that's why I'm not panicking yet they will return to provocations. I do wonder though, what about the military exercises? Right now we have decided to not continue with those, but there's another major military exercise coming up in the summer, fall. So after some status quo, after some months pass, are we going to just continually not exercise? Or, and if we do return to military exercise, then wouldn't that give North Korea sort of, uh, uh, sort of excuse so then sort of they can go back to provocation? And then in that scenario, China and others will say, well, okay, it's United States that returns to military exercises first, right? So right now what we have is freeze for freeze. We don't, we don't do exercises in return for no testing. What, what, what is the here. no testing, what, what is that doing to us right now, not testing? You mean not doing not the exercises? exercises. Yeah, I'm sorry, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, yeah. Is, what, is, what, is what is the freeze do to us? We haven't exercised yeah. in how long now? How long has it been? Well, well almost a year. Since, yeah. Almost since a year, right? Yeah. So how, what, what's that? What, readiness. What is that doing to us? Yeah, no, it definitely hurts the readiness of our forces and also the interoperability between U.S. and Korean forces. And it's especially important in Korea where most of our troops are there just for a one-year tour. So every year you have fresh troops who are, have to learn the terrain, how to, how to operate with the South Korean allies. Uh, so not doing these exercises just, uh, you, know, you can do it in other ways through simulations, through command post exercises, you know, computer-based exercises. But there's nothing like putting those troops in the field and learning how to uh, deal with uh, harsh conditions side by side with their allies. So, I mean, it is a freeze for freeze, but we did it unilaterally. We didn't perhaps get as much in return for it than, uh, as we could have. And I worry that if we continue to suspend uh, the North Koreans are just going to pocket it, we actually reduce our leverage uh, on denuclearization. And, and they seem to be hell-bent on being recognized and continually being recognized as a nuclear weapon state. They're, even though there's a momentary freeze, they're not, they haven't stopped in their pursuit. Well, that's, the, that's what people think is their ultimate goal, is to have their cake and eat it too, you know, right. have some kind of uh, deal that only reduces and limits their capability but leaves them as a nuclear weapon state. I don't think we should concede that because you know, they, they've said that denuclearization is, is their goal too. Uh, the conditions may be uh, hard to meet. Uh, but you know, we should continue to say that we don't accept them as a legitimate nuclear weapon state. 
uh, but only as a de facto one, and continue to try to chip away and find the, the trade-offs that can get them to actually t take some steps to dismantle some of the, the real stuff that threatens us. Victor, what do you think about this? I agree. I mean, um, you know, I think most uh, people that I've talked to have said that if you go a full year without any real exercising, you are, you know, you are truly eroding readiness on the peninsula. And, and in case anybody forgets, the North Koreans have not stopped exercising, right? Mm -hmm. they, right. they have a winter training cycle that goes till the end of this month. So, um, so it's very asymmetrical uh, in that sense. I don't think it, says it sends a good message more broadly to not just um, uh, alliance managers of, of Korea, but all of our alliances, if, uh, if there's a willingness to just put willy-nilly alliance equities on the table as bargaining chips or as concessions, unilateral concessions, for, you know, for a very uncertain uh, nuclear negotiation. Well, what wasn't freeze for freeze an idea that China and Russia yeah, advocated yeah, to yeah. begin with? Yeah, so I'm sure yeah. the Chinese and, we and the Russians. It. We right. thought it was Yeah, we rejected it. Yeah, and I'm sure the Chinese or Russians are, you know, are, are very happy with this. But I, you know, I think where we're going to go from here, at least on, in, that, in that respect, is you know, whenever, um, um, so, so I wrote a piece several years ago for the Dave's paper, the Washington Post, and the title of it, which was The Dilemma of American Reasonableness. And what it essentially was that we always get into these cycles with North Korea where you get to a point where um, North Korea takes a position that's, uh, that's uh, fairly unreasonable and then the United States stands on principle. And all the actors, the South Koreans, the Chinese, the Russians, with the exception of Japan, the South Koreans, the Chinese, and the Russians, look at the situation, and they eventually come to the Americans and they go, you know, those North Koreans, they're rat bastards, they're terrible. Can you be a little bit more flexible, right, to the Americans? And so I fully anticipate that that's what's going to happen. You know, the Chinese, South Koreans will start coming to Began and Pompeo and to Bolton and the president and say, you know, those North Koreans are rat bastards. You know, we know, you've, you, know you had these summits and everything. Can you be a little bit more flexible? I think that that's what we're going to start to see. Yeah, plus the South may start pushing for uh, waivers of some of the sanctions even without getting any progress from the North. And that kind of creates frictions between Washington and Seoul, which is a recipe for not ever making progress. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think <laughs> this, the South Koreans are in a very difficult position. They're probably the biggest loser of this, the failure of the Hanoi summit. And I think for President Moon, it's a very delicate situation because he's got to try to pick up the diplomatic pieces. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of time because they have elections in Korea next year. And so that campaign cycle will start up fairly soon. So I think he's got one opportunity uh, to try to do some sort of high level bringing the sides together. And if he succeeds, it's great. But if he fails, it's not going to position him and the party well going into the election season, especially, as Sue said, because they've thrown all their eggs in the North Korea basket. Well, so how are the South Koreans reacting to all of this? Well, I, I think they were caught off guard a little bit because I think South Koreans did expect some sort of interim deal where we were going to accept part of Yongbyon, we give some sanctions relief and peace declaration and so on. So I think this is an unexpected um, outcome. Um, but right now what they're going to do is exactly what Victor said. I think they're going to try to play an intermediary role. They're going to try to sort of meet with 
Kim Jong-un, I think it's going to be very difficult for Kim to go to South Korea now because South Korea is not going to be able to offer a big concession, a big package. Uh, so he's not going to go to South Korea, but maybe there is a meeting to be had in Panmunjom, or maybe South Korea will send an envoy, high-level envoy to North Korea to see if they can bring North Koreans and bring the Americans back to the table. But again, you know, it's just, that's fine, but I, I, I'm just skeptical of potential outcome. We already met at the highest level, and we couldn't bridge the, this gap. And you know, on denuclearization, we still don't have an agreed upon definition of exactly. denuclearization. And this is after Hanoi summit, after Singapore summit, eight months went by, we still don't have an agreed upon definition of denuclearization. Now, we don't have a roadmap, we don't have a timeline. Yeah. We, you mentioned, Victor mentioned the elections in South Korea. We have elections too. It's hard to avoid. Yeah, it's already <laughs> underway, right? So, um, you know, the question someone said, you know, well, Trump is going to stay in this until he realizes, someone was joking, I guess, but they said Trump will stay in this North Korea gambit until he realizes he won't get a Nobel Prize. Then he'll lose interest. Yeah. You know, and how, how does Trump want, you know, the domestic concerns are always big uh, for any White House in an election season. And how does Trump want to characterize this North Korea play, right? Is it a win? And he's going to say, I, I did a lot, I, I changed the game here. Uh, and, and ride that out, um, or does you know somehow he want? It's not going to be that instrumental. His re-election message is going to be immigration and the economy and Democrats and uh, you know out to get me and so on. And it's not that big a part. And I think you know someone was saying that Trump is headed to Japan as early as possibly next month um, or maybe May um, for the to meet the emperor, new emperor. Uh, and that the South Koreans are trying to get him to swing by Seoul. I don't know that that would happen, but um, you know, there's an interest in trying to keep Trump on board, right? And um, I think for the president, you know, you never know if he's going to he wants to use this issue to distract from some sort of um, you know domestic issue, um, or you know, or if he gets a deal with China on trade, uh, if that gives less pressure to get a deal with North Korea. Um, there's a lot of factors going into this. And just just you know, President Trump, I'm just wondering about his mindset because. Now he really, I think one of the other takeaway from this Hanoi summit is he must have walked away realizing, okay, finally, that this is not an easy deal. That Nobel Peace Prize is, you know, might not be available for him. So with all the domestic turmoil, with the Mueller investigation and everything else that's gonna, that he's going to be facing this year, is he even going to be focused on North Korea? Right. That's what but, on the other, but on the other hand, I mean, I think he must appreciate the fact that he got praised for walking away, even by, by Democrats. So maybe he him. learned something about... Well, yeah, the, White House. the art of the deal yeah. with, with Kim Jong-un is a little different than a real estate deal. <laughs> and uh, you know, maybe we should be a bit more on the, on the on the, uh, to take the initiative here. We've been very reactive in letting Kim Jong-un define the agenda, even though the president has been delighted to have these grand photo ops. Um, but maybe before the North Koreans quite figure out what they're going to do next, and I think they're in a period of uh, reflection because the, the media has been silent for the last few days. We should be proactive and try to shape the agenda and say, look, you know, we can do a big deal or a small deal, but let's get the people back together and, and see whether we can get what you want. Maybe it's in five stages, maybe it's in three stages, but, but there's a way forward where both sides can end up uh, and We reported winners. in today's story that uh, the president has privately expressed frustration at the coverage of this summit. And he's not so happy that the sort of uh, media coverage, but that the White House did make an effort to brief senators on their mm -hmm. goals and that the senators did come out in a bipartisan way and praise Trump for walking away, as you mentioned. Okay. Well, th this is to all of you, Dave, start, but d did you think that Trump was better prepared for this summit than he was for the last summit? And does he understand the nuance of, of policy when it comes to the North Koreans better now than he did uh, in, in Singapore? 
Um, that's a little bit of, uh, difficult to answer, probably. I mean, I, you know, I think in Singapore, his goal and the, you know, the media's attention kind of was on the historic moment, honestly. You know? And um, to some degree, um, the pageantry of that um, did become the story, right? And so, of course, reporters made the point that this was a fairly hollow agreement that had, some of which had been already agreed upon in South Korea. Um, and so going into this, I mean, there was clearly pressure on the White House to do more, and they clearly um, made some changes by bringing Steve Began in, uh, right. who they felt and, and seemed to get very you know, positive reviews from everyone I talked to uh, in Washington, both sides of the aisle, um, as someone who is a serious, um, disciplined um, negotiator who may, may not have had an extended background in Asia, but um, understood the politics of Washington and understood how important this was to the president. Um, what, what was not clear, though, is what we keep getting back to, which is was the you know, this interagency and sort of, you know, this sort of jargonistic kind of words we use for the NSC process, right? If there had been one under, under Bolton and whether they had come on the same page, and it did not seem clear that that was true. I mean, you know, the president clearly, you know, wanted some sort of deal and his, his uh, advisors were uh, a little bit more skeptical all, all along. So, um, but in the end, we saw, as, as you say, that the president sort of surprised folks by walking away. And, I mean, he did have this long plane ride to Hanoi with Ambassador Bolton there. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure if he wasn't prepped before, he was being prepped. And the fact that he brought, on, brought out Yongbyon Plus, right, and just yeah. even bringing that covert mm -hmm. side. Um, nuclear, explain, explain, explain what Yongbyon Plus means. Well, I think the North Koreans thought the deal was had to be had with the Yongbyon nuclear uh, complex aspect of Yongbyon. But I think President Trump brought up, it can't be Yongbyon. If you want these five sanctions relief, it has to be the whole thing. And then there was a second um, enrichment site that the Trump, President Trump brought it up. And I think the North Koreans, from what I understand, were caught a little bit off guard for, by that because they thought what they were going to talk about is just a new, new, uh, Yongbyon nuclear complex. It was particularly significant and surprising that the President seemed to have actually made some use of intelligence from the U.S. Right. intelligence community instead of... Uh, showing the North Koreans, you know, we know more about your program than you think we do, and that's why your offer is inadequate. It's too, too one-sided. That was new. Uh, A new use of well, his he, intelligence. I haven't program. heard him say anything good about the intelligence <laughs> At community. Least he used until intelligence. Now. Well, but he had to, right? Yeah. Because yeah. As, as Dave said, this, you know, the, this is the second meeting, so the expectations were there has to be something tangible coming up. You laid out the principles in the first meeting, so now you have to make progress. So, of course, it was going to get more, uh, more specific. I, I feel like going forward, like, if, if this does not go in a bad direction and it heads on the direction of diplomacy, um, you know, we have to start thinking about like, what can we actually get that goes beyond simply some old buildings at Yongbyon or some old test sites that they don't need anymore. And all the experts that I talk to feel like you know, the one practical thing that we really need going forward is we've got to stop them from producing more material, more bombs or more material. And then, so I think the question then for the, for the United States side is, if we decide in the interagency or through whatever truncated NSC process there is that that's a thing tangibly that we need to go after, what are we willing to give up in terms of sanctions? Because we know that's what they want. What are we willing to give up for, uh, you know, for a verifiable fissile material uh, production ban? And sanctions, I, mean, I think the administration <coughs> made a mistake early on in saying it was all or nothing when it came to sanctions. Yeah. So I think we do have to think of some kind of uh, incremental approach to sanctions. Anything we do early on should be reversible. We should have snapback provisions, whatever, whatever you need. Uh, but in the, at the end of the day, the North Koreans are just as transactional as Donald Trump, and I think there's going to have to be some quid pro quos. Yeah. Uh, 
I think we should be going after delivery systems as well, the things that actually bring those bombs uh, to, to Earth in South Korea or Japan or the United States. Uh, but uh, sometimes enlarging a problem, as President Eisenhower used to say, is, is one way to uh, make it more easy to solve. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to our audience questions in just a second. Dave, I want to ask you one last thing, though. Um, you, while you were on the trip, you asked President Trump a question about Auto One Beer. Um, what happened there? I mean, we're all yeah. talking about, you know, normalizing Kim Jong-un, um, you know, that he's reasonable. Yeah, what? so people ask me, why did I ask that? You know, yeah. It was at the news conference afterward. I had been in the press pool, so we traveled with the president in the motorcade over to the, uh, the news conference. And we got in there, there were hundreds of reporters already waiting. And the president came out. We didn't know how long he'd be there. Some were saying he may just do a statement and leave. Uh, in the motorcade, we actually got some sense from the aides that they might call the whole thing off. But they went through with it, and to Trump's credit, he spent an hour answering questions. But a number of questions had been asked and answered, uh, including from David Sanger, some specific questions about um, the, the nuclear issues and the negotiations. I had been interested, I mean, in, in asking the president about Otto Warmbier from the first summit, honestly. And uh, he had a long news conference there, but uh, sort of brushed off questions about human rights. And he had made such a big deal out of Otto's case, um, as people remember, in 2017 and through to the- uh, Had 20, his parents in the State of the 2018, Union. 2018, State of the Union. I had done a story uh, in January before this, this current, this, this uh, 2019 State of the Union about how he had, um, the centerpiece of the past one had been not just Otto's parents, but uh, Ji Sung Ho, the um, uh, South Korean, uh, North Korean defector and now ad activist in South Korea. And I'd said, right. you know, I'd asked, uh, we, we got in touch with him, uh, our, our career correspondent, and he said that he had been back to the White House once for the First Lady's holiday party in December, but the president didn't talk to him and he had expressed some, he, he was still hopeful, but expressed some concern that human rights were, were you know, being uh, brushed off. So um, I had been in touch with, with Otto's family and I was interested. So I asked the president if he had confronted Kim about Otto's death and whether he held him responsible and why he called him in a tweet, Kim Jong-un, my friend. Uh, the president um, did not necessarily seem ready for that question, but then did say that he brought it up and that you know, people saw the reaction that he brought it up and, um, and that Kim had uh, denied knowledge of any kind of abuse and that he felt badly about it. He took him at his word. And uh, you know, when I was, we, were, we had to leave immediately after in the motorcade for, to return to Washington uh, on Air Force One. And you know, I, my colleagues were scrambling to do with a lot of stories and they probably already had it in mind, but I said, I think we should do a full story on that. And we did. Um, and we've since uh, done, done several more. As we know, the family uh, came out the next day and, and uh, delivered a statement. We have a, a brilliant audience here today, um, including former Ambassador Bob King is here, former Ambassador Mark Lippert is here. Um, we have some great questions. This one is, is very direct. Comes from, it says, it seems pretty clear that North Korea will not denuclearize. Question is, is it time to accept North Korea as a nuclear power and then work from there on limiting and controlling it, sort of a Pakistan model. Victor, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm reminded of a time when the North Koreans said, and I talk about this in my book, so it, that when the North Koreans said to us, you should treat us more like Pakistan, and we said to them, you don't want us to treat you like Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think it's, I mean, increasingly many people, policy experts are of this view, I mean, I think it's very hard for the United States formally to recognize North Korea as a nuclear weapon state. Our policy will always be that we seek CVID or final and fully verified, whatever your favorite acronym is for this problem. Um, but when we start talking about, you know, fissile material ban or, um, or, or something on missile ranges or, or, or things of this nature, you know, that, that is trying to control the problem rather than eliminating it. I think the goal will always be to eliminate it. 
Um, uh, but practically speaking, you need to take interim steps that people will characterize as sort of de facto exceptions. They can characterize it any way that they want. For all of us around the table and Mark and um, Bob King and others who have worked on this issue, you know, your first job is you've got to limit the threat. You've ha you have to limit it. You have to stop it from growing. That's a yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, we shouldn't abandon the goal, particularly when Kim Jong-un continues at least to pay lip service to it. And uh, there's uh, you know, signed many North-South declarations to that effect as well in the Singapore statement. We do have to clarify what he means by denuclearization. And we do have to accept that this isn't going to be solved overnight. So even if we begin to engage again and start uh, getting some uh, positive actions on both sides, we still won't know the answer to the question of whether he's ever going to be ready to give them all up. Uh, but you know, this time, time could be different. I think we, you know, we are dealing with a somewhat different Kim than his father and grandfather. He's young. He doesn't want to uh, preside over a, you know, isolated pariah state ba basket case uh, for generations, and he might not be able to do that. I mean, I think we're seeing the sort of collapse of the state economy within North Korea uh, as markets are emerging, but it's kind of like one giant black market. It's not really a market economy. So we have leverage. We should see how far we can get. Uh, interim stages may just reduce the threat. Hopefully the most destabilizing systems can be t taken off the, off the playing field early. And uh, we'll, we'll see uh, what, what's possible. But uh, it, it should be our goal because I think there's risks of proliferation in the region if they're accepted uh, for the long haul as a nuclear weapon state. It does create pressures on South Korea or Japan uh, to go nuclear. Uh, and I think uh, you know, we'd, we'd rather not go down that road. I would also say that uh, you mentioned Bob King. One thing that the president could do uh, to show that uh, we are interested in human rights is to appoint a successor to Bob King as a special envoy for human but rights. Congress has authorized the appointment of a new ambassador uh, for human rights to North Korea, which Bob King occupied that role in the last previous administration, has not yet been appointed. Um, so it's a very good point. Mm -hmm. Sue, do you want to weigh in on this question? No, I 100% I, I agree. I don't think we can drop it as a goal, even if in reality we're pursuing a threat reduction policy to sort of reduce the threat. Um, just because of exactly what, what Ambassador was just talking about, there is a whole, whole lot of implications of really accepting it as a policy and you declare North Korea as a nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, country, uh, Removes power. the legitimacy for the sanctions. Absolutely. Reduce <laughs> legitimacy for sanctions, but it's a, the regional proliferation is a great point because this is, South Korea is not always going to be under this particular government. It could be under a very conservative government in the future. And let's say North Korea is accepted into nuclear weapons power. There's a real possibility that South Korea might say, you know, we might have to go nuclear ourselves. And then what happens with Japan? Um, then it's, we're talking about regional proliferation. We're also sending a very wrong message to rogue actors out there that eventually, I mean, even if that's not reality, um, that you know, all you have to just do it, and, and you, you have no. So, yeah, so you just you can wear us down. So <laughs> I just want to see it as a possibility where the U.S. government actually says that this is our policy, and yes, you're now North Korea is a nuclear weapons power. This is a related question. Um, someone else asked, "What's the um, downside of normalizing relations with North Korea?" Um, well, I think, you know, so one of them is, uh, it's got, it's, I, when the United States makes a decision like that, I don't, I think it's our decision, but it's also something that, you know, we want to make sure that our allies all feel the same way about it. And so obviously, the sore point here would be Japan, right? I don't think Japan would be ready for a U.S. DPRK normalization. Um, um, it's difficult, going back to the earlier point, it's difficult for me to imagine a normalized political relationship without 
something in terms of improvement of the human rights situation. Um, so it's difficult to get past that. Um, and then from a really transactional perspective, I think what Hanoi showed us is that North Koreans don't really care about that. Right? They're not really looking for a normalized relationship. What they want is something very transactional and very material, right? which is uh, sanctions relief. There was a, a pointed moment in the, that second time we got to see Kim Jong-un in the meeting with Trump, and people may have been watching it, but we're, we're, my colleagues were throwing out more questions for Kim Jong-un. Uh, they asked him about um, would, would he be willing to have a liaison office from Washington in Pyongyang, you know, which had, we thought of as just like one of the main things that already been agreed on. And uh, so I think one of Kim's aides uh, tried to cut off the question uh, and this. And then Trump, uh, you know, instead of ending it, uh, said, I, I'm interested in this. You know, I'd like to, I, and I was, at first I was saying, well, what is Trump saying? Like he's never heard this idea before. But it, instead it looked like one of the passive aggressive plays by the president to put Kim on the spot, which was really awkward given the you know, chummy kind of atmosphere he'd been trying to do, but the president does that and he uses the media the way he, he wants. And so put him on the spot a little oddly and Kim said it was very welcomable or something like that. But uh, soon after they said, uh, you know, Kim himself said, give us a minute, please leave. You know, and that's the last time we saw him. Dave, how are you and your colleagues at The Post going to continue to um, prepare for covering this story, continue to cover this story? You know, as we said, you know, might drop out of the news for some time now with politics and other issues going yeah. on. How are you going to keep It's an this interesting with? arc, and I, you know, my story today talked about the three prongs, immigration, trade, and, um, and uh, North Korea. And you know, the reason I did, because th those are the things the president has vested the most time in, you know, rhetorically, but also to, to agree policy-wise, right? And on immigration, it's executive actions and things, but it's symmetry and it's uh, tariffs. Um, and so you know, the, the arc of the North Korea story is interesting because it is a moment where the president seemed to take something from President Obama and although he maybe wants to show that he can do something Obama did not, it was that first meeting with Obama that seemed to put North Korea into his, his mindset at foremost. And in the campaign, he really had talked about China and Japan and others, right, and terrorism and ISIS, but he did not talk that much about North Korea, and all of a sudden it became issue number one. So to us, I think, just to, to answer your question, is how do you judge a president's record, right? I mean, there's the, the outside stuff with Trump's dealing with, but, um, but the, how do you judge his record? And I think North Korea has to be clearly one of the main pillars of that, and I think we'll continue to write it. You know, in these campaigns, uh, domestic concerns tend to far outweigh the, the, uh, the foreign policy, but I think we, as a paper, will continue to cover it uh, significantly, that's for sure. That's going to be it for uh, this session. Um, with your applause, will you please thank our panelists today? Thank you for being... Thank you for being part of the taping of The Impossible State. Um, you can get it wherever you listen to your podcast, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, CSIS's website, wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, we'd like to invite all of you to join us for a short coffee break out in the, uh, in the foyer here, and our session will pick back up uh, in about 15 minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we... Uh, um, the Senator Gardner is on his way. He has a vote, so um, we have a little bit of time before he comes. He's supposed to be here by uh, by 2:45. Um, but uh, at CSIS, we never allow for uh, for there to be blank space during our events, and we thought we'd take full advantage of the fact that Ambassador Mark Lippert um, is here with us today um, to moderate the discussion with Senator Gardner, but also provide us an opportunity to ask him questions before he asks questions of Senator Gardner with regards so, to yeah. what happened in, in Hanoi. So for those of you who are not aware, uh, Ambassador Mark Lippert was our ambassador to uh, South Korea during the Obama administration. 
Um, <clears throat> in addition to being uh, a, a seasoned um, uh, uh, um, U.S. government official in the DOD, he's also Korea's number one baseball fan, I think, as some of you know. And, uh, and he's got other things coming down the pike that, we, that, uh, that you should you will all be very interested in, in terms of Mark's relationship with Korea. Um, but I thought we'd start by first sort of getting Mark's, get, getting your impression of what you saw happen in Hanoi, or what didn't happen in Hanoi, and, um, and who do you think was sort of the biggest winner and biggest loser? Well, thanks, Victor. Great to be here. And uh, moreover, I was sort of told there was going to be no math today. I didn't really prepare for any of this stuff, um, but uh, always a pleasure to be here. And I will note that it's just about two weeks, a little, little over little over two weeks away from the start of the Korean baseball season. So I'm uh, <laughs> counting that down, and I already have my tickets for opening day, so I'm ready to go. Um, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I do think that, I thought, I thought the, first of all, I thought the panel was excellent today and really covered the, the waterfront. So I'm trying to think about what I can say that's not repetitive. But what I guess what I would say is maybe I'll make a, a little bit play a little bit of um, the optimistic case. And I'll maybe talk hypothetically as opposed to um, my, 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 you know, the, my precise personal views. But uh, I know everybody's concerned, and I got a lot of questions from the Korean media right after this about you know, all the activity the North is, may or may not be doing right now. And I think that um, maybe I'll just make a glass half full argument. Uh, I do think, as Ambassador Virchbal noted, that in the summit that this summit did show the limits of the top-down, leader-to-leader approach. And I do think that it did sharpen in the North Koreans' mind how far President Trump is willing to go. And I think that will, ch that will help change the North Koreans' calculation. I also think that it... Um, I think also it showed that they definitely need sanctions relief, right, as you noted, Victor. And I do think that uh, at the end of the day... Um, what I think it does for the next kind of month or so is I put, I think if, if I were in the U.S. government, it would put a premium on me to be in, in deep talks with Beijing and Seoul immediately and to try to get Beijing and Seoul out of the mode that you described, which is get the U.S. to be more flexible and get those two capitals in the mindset of telling the North Koreans something like this. Uh, President Trump has now done two summits. He's gone further than any other American president. The Americans are clearly interested in something, and they're showing some flexibility. Um, you, the North Koreans, we think probably were willing to come down off of your initial offer if you believe some of the press events that the North Koreans held on the margins of Hanoi. So it's incumbent upon you to get back to the table quickly. Uh, and that, that, would, that would be my, the, 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 the diplomatic approach I would be taking at this moment to try to really utilize the good relations, especially with Seoul, but also with Beijing, to try to get the North Koreans back to the table and at working level talk. So I think there's a little bit of a glass half full scenario here, uh, if played right and if the chips fall in the right direction, that might actually work uh, to the advantage of accelerating the process. And finally, what I would say is really putting aside kind of this last round of symmetry you've seen, uh, both the inter-Korean and the, the two U.S.-North Korean summits, I, I always take people back to the 2015 events at the, 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 at the demilitarized zone, which is the, really the last serious negotiation anybody really had with the North Koreans, right? And, uh, you know, 
with all due respect to some of the stuff that's happened. I mean, real brass tacks uh, uh, stuff. And remember that if you talk to the South Korean negotiators at that time, they felt that one of the key reasons they were ultimately able to reach a deal and reach a deal that was advantageous to them was that they walked out. Uh, And the walkout catalyzed North Koreans' behavior, uh, and they came back to the table relatively quickly. So it's all a long way of saying that um, this is very typical of both North and South Korean negotiating behavior. There is some reason to be optimistic, and there are things that the U.S. administration needs to be doing now, today, immediately, to try to get this back into uh, a positive direction, because I would just say all is not lost here, and in fact, there might be some green shoots and some positive um, momentum coming out of this thing in a, in a very strange and counterintuitive way. Could you, that's very interesting, could you all speak to the domestic political context for the actors? I mean. We talked a little bit about Trump and the challenges he had while he was in, in Hanoi, but, but also on the, on the North Korean side as well as the, the South Korean side. Yeah, I mean, I, I have always been of the view, and this is maybe where I would quibble with you just a little bit, um, that, um, that, that the North Koreans' time is probably not on their side, and here's why. I think what the summit showed was that the sanctions are pretty strong, especially the ones that go beyond the nuclear and WMD programs. And remember, that's, the audience here knows this well, but just to restate it, um, you know, everybody used to make the case when, the, when we were in the Obama administration, not everybody, but a lot of people would say, the sanctions won't work, They're, we've sanctioned these guys out, and they've been going on for years. And remember, what, what this showed is these larger, more broad, comprehensive sanctions are exerting pressure. I think that's point one. I think point two, I've always subscribed to the theory that there are markets and information flow within North Korea that are changing North Korean society, making the regime uncomfortable. And three, it dovetails with the broader point that the model that Kim Jong-un has there has got to change in some way, shape, or form, and the sanctions accelerate and or put, put more pressure on him to change and give him less options to change comfortably. So it puts uh, an imperative on relief. So I think that's... That's why I do think that there is some incentive to come back to the table. On the South Korean side, I do think that you know the South Koreans are probably the most disappointed. Uh, I, do, I do subscribe to the notion that they were very interested in the end of war declaration. Uh, they were very interested, I think, in getting Kaesong and Kumgang reopened. And you know those are, I think, if you talk to South Korean friends who are in the Blue House now, I think they would argue those are important accelerants of the denuclearization and the peace process. Um, I think ultimately though, or as, not ultimately, but not mutually exclusively, is that, you know, they're important domestic political symbols for the left too, right? Uh, Kumgang and uh, Kaesong are Sunshine Era, uh, uh, pillars of the Sunshine Era policy, uh, I think. And I think uh, the President, President Moon, does have some imperative to deliver on this strategy. Um, it's popular in South Korea, but I think the South Koreans are also starting, you can sense the South Korean uh, population is starting to get a little bit more, um, let's put it this way, uh, guarded about the process. Finally, I would say, though, the, the thing that I think is new and will cause, will be interesting to watch in the South Korean political um, sphere is what this imagery you put up uh, will do to that discussion, right? If the, you know, things have been relatively quiet for a while, 
And if things get choppy again, what impact will that have on the dynamics there? Final point on South Korean politics, I would say that it is interesting, you know, there's no doubt that the economy is the issue. Um, the, the conservatives, just, they're getting more organized, but they're still fairly disorganized. But there's even, despite disorganization, they're ticking up in the polls, right? And they're ticking up in the polls largely because of the bread, bread and butter issues of the economy at home. And so that, I do think, puts more emphasis on, uh, or at least more, pre more of a premium on this North Korea pillar, if it will, in terms of Moon Jae-in's domestic political appeal and, and popularity rating. And what is it that, so I, if we look at the, for, first in terms of the time, time being, I, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think that the, the sanctions really are having an impact. The, um, you know, depending on whose estimate you looked at, North Korean economy shank, shrank by between 3 and 5 percent in 2017. That's a direct function of sanctions. The trade deficit with China is way up, way right, up, up yeah. 30 percent. That's clearly a function of, of the sanctions. So, so the, that's point, point well taken. Um, on, um, uh, uh, but if, as we go forward, I mean, clearly the actor that's, that's the most disappointed of all, the non-outcome in Hanoi is South Korea. And I think they sort of feel it's their responsibility now to try to pick up the pieces. I mean, what do you think that they're going to they're going to try to do in terms of trying to get this get this back this you know railroad car back on the tracks again? It's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, I, first I would say if I were the North Koreans, and I know you asked about South Korean, but I think their first play will be to try to get the Chinese to basically r reduce implementation. Right, that's what yeah. I would do first. Yeah. Right, and yeah. see if they can get relief there. And I think that directly impacts. Um, the South Korea question, because if they don't get what they want from the Chinese, then they'll come back to the South Koreans, right? And that will put, that will be a, I, th I think that will impact South Korean, or at least factor into South Korean decision making. What, I think the South Koreans with us have two basic options that we talked about, which is try to get us to be more flexible, uh, or uh, try to persuade uh, the North Koreans to come back to the table, or they could probably try to do both. Uh, and I, I would, I guess what I would say if I were, if the South Koreans asked me, uh, I would say, I would re re remind them that even though the summit collapsed, the way in which it collapsed, uh, quotes around collapsed, were, is that by and large, the U.S. side did not burn the bridges behind them, right? It was not amicable is not the, the right word, but it was, there were not, uh, there were not heavy recriminations. There was not a lot of name calling, and at least what I saw, and I kind of felt that that did leave the door open. So I mean, that would be a point that I would stress. So I, I think that's where their sweet spot is going to be, because I, I, and this comes back to the North Korea issue, which is, I just, it's hard for me to see another North-South summit, and I probably should have said this first, without the U.S. denuclearization sanctions track in play, right? If that is dormant or off or, and I think that gets at your question, which is explains some of the South Korean disappointment because I think the South Koreans know that if that track, U.S. North Korea is in trouble, it really does impact the inter-Korean process in this go around. So I do think that they'll probably try to get that track going. How they do that is important, but it does, it feels to me that it does, even if they try an inter-Korean play, it seems less likely to work, and even if it does work, seems less likely to have tangible outcomes uh, that would um, 
be concrete deliverables, both in terms of real uh, uh, deepening of the exchange and domestic uh, political considerations as well. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, um, and, and they, they have a, well, I mean, both President Moon and President Trump have a limited amount of time right now, right? Because both of them have elections next year. In the South Korean case, they're national parliamentary elections, uh, but, and, and we know what's happening here. So they, they don't really have a lot of time uh, before they get distracted by other things. What about, I mean, we talked about in the podcast, I love your view on this. What about this, this possibility that um, um, the, the, perhaps one of the more lasting impressions of the failure of the Hanoi summit is that the, the president may start losing interest in the issue? Because like you said, they've really, we really got to, the North Koreans got to see the limits of what um, the most forward-leaning president in a long time on diplomacy with North Korea, we saw the, what the limits were there. Um, and, and the president, I think, also sort of went, walked into this and pushed it as far to the edge as he could, didn't, didn't get the results that he wanted. I mean, what, what's the chance that he may start losing interest? In, I mean, in I, I think it's a very real possibility, and that's, you know, we could go through the downsides. I mean, I think the big downside to me was that, you know, there was a moment here, right, and had, I think, and I put a lot of responsibility on Kim Jong-un on this, right, had he grasped the moment, uh, and made some concessions up front, and there are a handful of concessions that wouldn't you know, significantly undermine their security situation, but would be significant enough to show that they're serious, right? There's a, there's a, there's a landing strip in there that a lot of experts have defined, and they just, for whatever reason, didn't do that. Maybe they were going to walk out and come back and lower the bar throughout a series of negotiations and they were surprised by the U.S. walking, I, who knows, but the point is that you know, had they gone in, taken this in a different direction, been a little more strategic, a little less tactical, there was a moment here, right? And that's, that is disappointing and I think it comes back to your question, which is, you know, I think that I, I'm not gonna, you know, um, pretend I can get inside the president's head, but I will say having worked in a White House, the presidency by and large, which you try to leverage and use it for, is for big moments, yeah. right? And when you have these big events and big run-ups and lead-ups, you want, generally speaking, big results. Now, you know, and I'll just say this, there was, an, it was an interesting theory of the case, right? A lot of experts here in town have argued for years that we've got to get Kim, Kim Jong-un or the leader or whoever that may be in with the U.S. president because that's the real decision maker. And, you know, I think that there is a little bit of disappointment in that we did do that and um, that the, the North, at least at this point, wasn't able to seize the moment. And I think Part of the reason I'm disappointed is, you know, that's, that's the cleanest shot in, right? Everybody wants this problem solved, right? And if you can get everybody in a room and start talking and make real progress, that's probably the quickest way to actually solve this problem. And that's one of the, the disappointments. So I, I would say there's a danger that um, there is a loss of interest. But I, I would say that, you know, if we, we talked about it just a little bit ago, I do think there's enough incentives running one way or at least in a certain direction, that there is some cause for hope that we can, can continue this and actually make some discernible progress before uh, the, the, the political season, both in Seoul and Washington, get uh, too far along. Yeah. I mean, the flip side of that is, of course, 
Donald Trump could still believe he's the greatest negotiator, deal maker in the world, and say, "I just need another shot at this." Right. right? And, and they didn't a, close the door completely. They didn't close the they door. They didn't that's close right. the door. And and significantly, we move forward with terminating these exercises. That's right. Are they terminated or are they just suspended? I think suspended. They're suspended. Suspended. Right. But I think the danger is, you know, if you. You know, it's a little like team spirit, right? right uh, Dave Maxwell's right. here. He can tell you this uh, chapter and verse, right? Yeah. If you suspend and start putting this on the table, it all of a sudden becomes terminated, yeah. you know, and I yeah. think that's the danger. And I do think, you know, that I, I think the point that Sandy made earlier about just in general lumping military exercises as political de deliverables is a pretty pretty dangerous road in, in that, um, you know, I mean, the reason we do exercises is because having worked at the Pentagon, the Pentagon, for lack of a better term, is the lender of last resort, right? Like, you know, you, you, you're, you're sitting there in the, the Secretary of Defense's office as his chief of staff, and when, when people press the button, right, you've got to be ready, right? And you can't say, well, I just, I need a little more time to get the talking points in order, or the, or the <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you've got to go immediately. And uh, that's what exercises do, right? They allow you to have confidence that you can go immediately, in addition to deterrence and all that good stuff. But I just think people sort of often lose sight of that, that, you know, at DOD, that culture and the building is charged with it, you plan, uh, you know, for alliances, you have plans, you have resources, you have exercises, because those alliance commitments are real, uh, they are immediate, uh, they're prescient, and things could happen, you know, tomorrow that would send you into some sort of scenario where you have to respond and you want to be obviously at the top of your game when you respond. Yeah, yeah, and then also the exercises, I mean, they, they, uh, the North Koreans have been invited to observe these exercises in the, in the past. And, um, and, uh, uh, and again, so some of the research that we've done at CSIS, I mean, the president has talked about these as provocative and expensive. Um, and again, some of the work we've done at CSIS shows that um, North Korea only reacts to the exercises when we're actually not in a, in a dialogue, in, in a negotiation with them then the exercising tends to elicit very violent North Korean reactions. But if we're actually in a dialogue with them and exercises take place, then there's not much activity by, uh, by the North. So, um, so um, switching topics and to sort of the, the lighter side. Um, so you've been back in, how long have you been back in D.C. now? About two years. About two years. So how often do you get back to Korea? Uh, a lot, actually. You know, it's uh, been surprising, you know, three to five times a year. So. Uh -huh. Um, yeah, it's, it's great, um, but I sort of always forget that the Koreans like to really stay out late. So, you know, I'm, I, here in Washington, you go to bed at like, you know, 8.30, right? And uh, in Korea, it's a night town, so, you know, it takes some getting used to. The, um, um, did you, um, so when you were, you know, working with a, a state senator and, um, and uh, um, did you ever think that you would end up becoming first of all, the ambassador to Korea, and that you would, you know, would leave Korea with this sort of deeply held affection and tie to Korea. Did, could you ever imagine that happening in your wildest dreams? No, no I mean, in fact, uh, you know, when people ask me, you know, uh, a lot of young people come up and ask for career advice and, you know, ambassador being for a policy hand or whatever it is, you know, I just said, you know, you've just got to uh, treat it as a, as a journey because uh, you never know. Like, and, uh, 
you know, how I became ambassador is literally, uh, I remember it, I had two very senior State Department people contact me about it. And I said, you know, I just got the job with Secretary Hagel and, you know, and they were, they were sort of, you know, pushing back and they basically said, look, you, you've, you, you'd be very good for the job. They said, you know, you've got the Pentagon experience. That's really important. You know, the president, the Koreans want someone close to the president. You know, you, you've, you've been around the Korean policy stuff. You know that. And besides, we really just don't have anybody else. So can you do it? I was like, you could have left the last one out. Uh, so that's, you know, the point is you just never know. But I'll just say this. It was, you know, um, my phone's ringing. Sorry, I forgot to mute it. I didn't realize we were going to be on stage so quickly. Um, I guess what I'd say is this, is that, you know, you just you just never know. I didn't think we'd have two kids over there. I didn't never obviously anticipated this crazy knife attack that had all these repercussions. And I just never, you know, I guess you'd sort of you had a 20, a 20 year career in government. And, uh, you know, and people who've served in government in this room know, like, you know, it rarely works out. You have these crazy jobs are kind of OK. You're beaten down. You're in some cubicle with a pile of paper. It's not West Wing. This isn't sexy stuff. It's, you know, it's a tough slog. And then you, you know, once in 20 years, you drop into a job that's just plays to all your strengths. You're there at the right time. Um, and it's great for you and your family. And that was that. And I should say the other thing, too, and I'll end on this, is that, you know, you're, you're also very lucky because you were there at a really good time for the relationship. Uh, and, you know, as a Navy guy, I could say you can be the best sailor in the world, but if the sun and the tide and the boat are all working against you, your seamanship only goes so far. <laughs> um, and so that was the other thing that was just really lucky. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop after this and say, you know, it's just something we, we've fallen in love with it. We're back all the time. I think we're we're going to go back in early April with my wife, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. And it's it's you know we miss it every day, and uh, don't don't necessarily miss you know the 18-hour days of being ambassador, getting calls at two o'clock in the night by either Washington or the Blue House or both simultaneously. <laughs> but do miss the culture, do miss the people. Hmm. So um, so let I'll, let please indulge one story with uh, with Mark when he was when he was appointed, and. Uh, um, uh, I hope you don't mind sharing, my sharing the story. I, I, he called me and he said, so how do I, Mark said that one of the key reasons they wanted him there was because of his close relationship with the president. And you said to me, like, how do I lower Korean, South Korean expectations that I'll be able to call President Obama anytime, every time the South Koreans want something? And so, you know, I said, I mentioned a couple of things to him. To make a long story short, we uh, I, I was invited to his um, his uh, swearing-in ceremony uh, at the State Department, and and so we're at the swearing-in ceremony, and it's you know it's a small, modest swearing-in ceremony, um, and uh, while we're in the middle of this, all of a sudden there's a lot of commotion in um, um, down the hallway, like lots of people shuffling and doors moving, and and people you know big guys in suits. And, and who shows up for the confirmation but President Obama. <laughs> so I said to Mark afterwards, I said, that's a great way to lower expectations, being the president's appointee in, in, in Seoul. Um, so anyway, so um, we will transition now to the next part. Senator Gardner has joined us, so let's transition to the next part. And let me please thank Mark for, uh, for our discussion, and we'll invite uh, Senator Gardner to the stage. So thank you. Oh, I'm gonna stay here. Yeah. Good to see. You. Good to see. You. Good to see. You. So why don't you come up? I'm gonna introduce you. Okay. I'll just. You know what? I'll come down and I'll come up. I'll okay. Come back. I'll, after. Bye.
Uh, okay, um, so it is uh, our pleasure to have uh, Senator Cory Gardner with us. Let me do a proper introduction um, since we have the cameras rolling. Let me do a proper introduction <laughs> for you. So Senator Gardner is a fifth generation Coloradan who was born and raised in Yuma, which is a small uh, town in, in Colorado. He began serving in the Colorado House of Representatives at the age of 30 and was elected to the House, in, uh, the House of Representatives in 2010. He became a senator in 2014 and serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee where he's chairman of the Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cyber Security. Um, as many of you know, Senator Gardner has been instrumental in a lot of the work with regard to uh, new sanctions against North Korea uh, for both nonproliferation and human rights. The North Korea Sanctions Policy and Enhancement Act uh, was signed into law by President Obama in February of 2016. He also authored, co-authored the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, um, with Senator Markey of Massachusetts, which is a landmark piece of legislation signed into law by President Trump, which establishes a multifaceted U.S. strategy to increase U.S. security, economic interests, and values in the Indo-Asia Pacific, authorizing $1.5 billion in spending for a range of U.S. programs in the region. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, I really can't think of anyone today who has been more of a leader and made more of a difference on Asia policy and strategy than uh, Senator Gardner. And so, with this, I hope you will give him a warm welcome to CSIS. Thanks, Corey. That's terrific. Thank you. Thanks. Well, good afternoon, and thank you very much, Victor, for that kind introduction. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Lippert, for your service uh, and sacrifice. Uh, you know, when we think about uh, the work that our ambassadors do, no one exemplifies the both hard work that you face, the challenges, but also the dangers that can come with it. So thank you very much, Ambassador Lippert, for your service and uh, to all of you. The last time I believe I was at CSIS to give a, a speech uh, of this note uh, was June 18th, which was uh, just uh, June 18th of last year, immediately following the first summit uh, between President Trump and Kim Jong-un in Singapore. Uh, as President Reagan once said, there you go again. Uh, alas, in the aftermath of the second summit in Hanoi just last week, of course, uh, much of what I said then remains true today. Uh, let's hope that the next time you host me here, uh, that I won't have to repeat myself a third time uh, with what we are going to talk about today. Uh, so I'll keep my remarks short and brief so that we can get into some questions, but I want to make a few uh, points particularly of interest uh, with Congress as it relates to North Korea policy. Uh, at the outset, uh, I think we should commend President uh, and the Trump administration for moving beyond what I call press release diplomacy in a genuine attempt to resolve a serious national security issue that has bedeviled multiple in in administrations, Republicans and Democrats alike. Uh, dealing with Kim Jong-un and the Kim family playbook of mendacity and deception is certainly no easy task. Our team, led by Secretary Pompeo and Steve, uh, Special Representative Steve Began, deserve much credit for attempting to move the ball forward. And likewise, the administration, though, was right to walk away from a very potentially, potentially very bad deal in Hanoi. But the question remains, why was such a non-starter offer made in the first place? Did they believe it was in earnest? Did they believe that President Trump would accept the offer? Did it show a willingness to actually deal? Trading the Yangbyon complex, even if we could agree on what constitutes the extent of the complex, uh, for the entirety of the international sanctions regime against Pyongyang would have had a disastrous outcome. 
As Mr. Began himself stated in a speech at Stanford University in January, uh, of course the purpose of diplomacy is not more meetings. The purpose of the meetings is to produce outcomes and progress. For the Kim regime, it is a time of choosing. Continue the failed game, of, uh, game plan of father and grandfather, or open a new chapter of opportunity. And this is where we are unfortunately falling short. But make no mistake about it, the blame for the lack of progress lies squarely with Pyongyang. While there has been no missile or nuclear testing for 15 months, North Korea still remains a nuclear threat to the United States and our allies. This, incontro uh, this incontrovertible fact was made uh, most recently confirmed by the administration's own 2019 Worldwide Threat Assessment, released by the Director of National Intelligence in January. As the DNI no also noted, we are not any closer to our objective of denuclearization, stating, we continue to observe activity inconsistent with full denuclearization. In addition, North Korea has, for years, underscored its commitment to nuclear arms, including through an order in 2018 to mass-produce weapons and an earlier law and constitutional change affirming the country's nuclear status. Two leader summits later, Pyongyang still has taken no concrete, verifiable, and irreversible actions to dismantle even an iota of its vast arsenal of nuclear, missile, biological, radiological, and chemical weapon programs as required as required by U.S. law and numerous United Nations Security Council resolutions. In fact, as CSI has recently reported, North Korea has instead continued to advance its illicit uh, programs in improving nuclear missile infrastructure during these sensitive diplomatic negotiations. I think, Victor, you just made comments on that today. Uh, the, the team uncovered that North Korea has rebuilt and returned to operating status a key launch facility. As your report stated, the rebuilding activities demonstrate how quickly North Korea can easily render reversible any steps taken towards scrapping its WMD program with little hesitation. This poses challenges for the U.S. goal of final, irreversible, and verifiable denuclearization. Likewise, last week, the researchers at the private cybersecurity firm McAfee uncovered an 18-month-long campaign of cyber attacks against U.S. and European targets by individuals associated with the North Korean regime, which include efforts to hack into banks, utilities, and oil and gas companies. The report specifically highlighted that these attacks were being conducted at the same time as the Hanoi summit. Surely these are not signs of a good-faith effort of a regime interested in negotiating in good faith, or negotiating with a shared goal of denuclearization and peaceful coexistence in mind. Let us not forget that the neo-Stalinist regime in Pyongyang remains the world's leading violator of human rights. In 2014, the United Nations said in a landmark report that the regime is committing genocide against its own people. It is still doing this today. This is a serious problem for Kim Jong-un because, according to U.S. law, progress on human rights is as much a requirement to lifting of sanctions against North Korea as is the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization. We must also never forget that the North Korean regime brutally, brutally tortured and intentionally murdered U.S. citizen Otto Warmbier. Otto's blood will forever be on Kim Jong-un's hands. We will never forget Otto, as I have told his mom and his dad Cindy and Fred Warmbier. This leads to the fundamental question that we face today. Where do we go? My answer is that we must always remember the goal of any negotiations with Pyongyang must only be to bring the regime into compliance with international and, international and U.S. obligations, no more, no less. That's our law, 
its international laws enshrined by the North Korea Policy Enhancement Act and the Asian Reassurance Initiative Act, both legislative efforts that I led in the Senate signed into law. Until such time as the regime chooses to comply, we must pursue the policy of maximum pressure, including full sanctions enforcement, robust military posture, and regime isolation in coordination with our allies and our partners around the globe. North Korea's enablers must recognize that destabilizing, the destabilizing effect and proliferation risk that North Korea, a nuclear North Korea, possesses. That's been my main message, both to the administration and especially to our friends in Seoul, who seem especially eager to advance the cause of inter-Korean cooperation without a tangible change in behavior from Pyongyang. We must immediately ramp up the maximum pressure campaign against North Korea. The North Korean Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act mandates, not simply authorizes, it mandates the continual identification and designation of new entities for sanctions, which unfortunately has slowed for months now. According to research conducted by the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, since March 31, 2017, the Trump administration sanctioned 182 persons and entities for North, Korea, North Korean sanctions violations. However, since February of 2018, the Treasury Department has issued only 26 new designations. North Korea remains today only the fourth most sanctioned country by the United States after Syria, Russia, and Iran. We must do better. We must do better, especially with clear evidence of pervasive sanctions violations with regard to illicit ship-to-ship -ship transfer of sanctioned goods, financial transactions that illegally benefit the regime, and North Korea's malicious activities in cyberspace. That's why in the near future I will reintroduce with Senator Ed Markey our legislation called the Leverage to Enhance Effective Diplomacy, or the LEAD Act. The LEAD Act would impose a mandatory trade embargo against Pyongyang and impose sanctions against all those violating that embargo. Among other new provisions to increase pressure on Pyongyang, the strength of the legislation uh, is clear. It's also my sincere hope that we will maintain a robust military deterrent to guard against any future provocations by Pyongyang. The United States should not sacrifice joint military readiness with our uh, allies to appease Kim Jong-un. The reason why these exercises are necessary is because of North Korea's historically hostile behavior and repeated violations of international law. Likewise, removing any U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula in the near future would be a profound mistake. I sincerely hope that a pathway to a diplomatic resolution remains open. But it is clear that a pathway can only result in one outcome. A historic decision by Kim Jong-un to denuclearize, to abide by international law, and to show respect for the basic human rights of his people. I fear that additional high-level summits without concrete outcomes will only serve to legitimize a two-bit dictator with an economy one-tenth the size of its neighbor in South Korea. In this unsavory but difficult and necessary task, we cannot allow any appearance of moral equivalency between a brutal dictatorship and free societies that seek to stop their abuses and change their behavior. We should not have a significant difference in our approach toward the mullahs in Tehran or the Maduro regime in Venezuela to the way we approach a 34-year-old hereditary dictator for life of one of the world's most repressive states north of the 38th parallel. There can be no normalization without denuclearization. For North Korea, full stop. And we should all unite behind this common sense goal. Victor, CSIS, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here.
Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right, well, thanks, Senator. Thanks for a uh, really uh, comprehensive speech that really touched all the issues and took all my questions. Uh, so I should say by way of introduction, just first of all, thank you for your service on Capitol Hill. In, a, in an era of sometimes partisan fighting, uh, you've been a real bipartisan leader on, on Asia policy and, and really politics writ large. And second, I should say, um, we actually work together as staffers yeah. and talk about, you talked about dangerous duty. Uh, we overlapped as staffers. And I still remember when you uh, called me uh, in the hospital when I was attacked and you were really one of the first people who called me and I said wait that's sec that's Senator Allard's former legislative director he's a senator now I'm in the hospital how's this working out for me oh my god uh, what yeah. is he doing yeah, no. but but congratulations on a on a really a terrific run and maybe just to get into the questions you know if if you had held a hearing today uh, on this issue and called Mr. Began up, called Secretary Pompeo up. What would you ask the administration? What would you advise them? And what do you think other members of your committee might say on this issue? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, where, where are we today that we weren't two years ago, three years ago, four years ago? Are we in a better place? Why would Kim Jong-un make the offer that he did did we not make it clear that, uh, that unconditional concrete action was the only way forward? Again, you know, this, this move beyond press release diplomacy is important. Uh, no doubt about that. But the fundamental misunderstanding of the Kim regime to think that an offer of you know, a portion or part of or all of Yongbyon would be enough for complete uh, relief is uh, simply, simply not, uh, not a starter. Uh, and so, you know, did we have a different expectation? Uh, what went wrong? Why did they think we'd accept it? Gotcha. And what do you think they would say at this point? You know, I think they would say, hey, uh, you know, the president's committed to the denuclearization. Uh, they went in with good faith, uh, clear that perhaps some of the uh, staff uh, beneath Kim uh, has a different uh, idea or trajectory or conversation than Kim coming forward and doing whatever he mm -hmm. wants despite any ground that may have been laid. I think that uh, is a challenge. But... Um, you know, I think they recognize now, I hope they recognize now, that this, uh, this regime is awful stubborn in the status quo. Gotcha. And, and so while the administration sorts out what its next moves are, what do you think Congress should be doing here? You know, you've got, as, as Victor outlined, you, you've been deep into the legislation, uh, deep, deeply involved in passing legislation on North Korea. You guys have been uh, advocates of certain positions on the Hill, obviously been in touch with uh, Otto Warmbier's family on, and human rights issues writ large. What role can the Congress play in this environment? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think uh, I, I remember when I first uh, took over the chairmanship of the East Asia subcommittee, I, I, was, uh, I, I labeled uh, Kim Jong-un the forgotten maniac because it seemed like Congress had just, uh, you know, attention was drawn hourly to the Middle East, and rightfully so, but there was no, you know, bandwidth left to address the person who was actually launching uh, ballistic missiles. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we, we were able to change the attention off of that uh, to, to get to a point where, uh, we had the North Korea uh, Sanctions Policy Enhancement Act, the first time ever uh, Congress enacted mandatory mm -hmm. sanctions on North Korea and its enablers. And so what Congress needs to do now is ramp up the pressure, make sure that maximum pressure is real, because there is no doubt, no doubt, that as a result of the two summits, pressure has been released. 
Uh, and uh, you can see it in the open source reports of ship-to-ship -ship transfers. Mm -hmm. You can see it in the terms of commerce uh, numbers that we see. And so that pressure needs to be put back in place. And we need to not only stand up to North Korea, we need to stand up to its enablers and start putting uh, financial uh, uh, sanctions in place. And, and those who access the financial system to enable uh, North Korea, we need to make sure uh, later on as we look at the progress that will be made on North Korean workers that are propping up uh, the Kim Jong-un mm -hmm. regime in China and Russia, that that is indeed fulfilled. Those remittances are no longer a part of this and that we stand up for human rights uh, as we know we must, uh, that we have uh, a shaming of the violations in sometimes Chinese territorial waters of ship-to-ship -ship transfers. Mm -hmm. and we continue that effort. I believe we ought to pass the LEAD Act. This is a full-on trade embargo. It would be the toughest measure mm -hmm. Congress has ever taken. But, you know, uh, strength is something Kim Jong-un uh, responds to. And strength is something the United States is really good at. Gotcha. And, and you touched on this. Take it slightly different tact. You touched on it in your opening comments. You mentioned it just a second ago on human rights. Yeah. Uh, Congress traditional, uh, traditionally has been a leader on human rights. You know, really was instrumental in creating the Bureau of Human Rights at the State Department and many other uh, human rights initiatives. Where are we on this issue in the negotiations? Where is this yeah. heading? How important is this to you in terms of where we go vis-a-vis yeah. -vis denuclearization. You know, I think it has to be clear that uh, we do talk all the time, and rightfully so, about uh, CVID, uh, you know, complete denuclearization, but, you know, not in the next sentence, but in the same sentence is uh, human right, uh, human rights, uh, and the requirement of the law to address human rights. Uh, I know that it was brought up at the summit uh, in conversations we've had with the State Department. That is something uh, that took place. Uh, obviously, we need more attention being paid to human rights and North Korea and understanding that they go hand in hand, denuclearization and human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, but Congress can step up and do more. Uh, one of the ways we have done that, the Asia Reassurance Initiative that Victor talked about uh, passed, uh, it has a very strong sort of third pillar on human rights, democracy, and rule of law. Uh, it highlights some of the, the, the violations of, of human rights, uh, uh, and of course, it provides additional funding for our efforts as it relates to civil society and helping gain the awareness of people uh, through, uh, through different uh, outreach efforts by the United States, whether that's Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, uh, other things that we can be gotcha. focusing on. Well, thanks. Great answer, Senator. And let me just uh, pivot to uh, another issue you, again, mentioned a little bit in your, your, your opening comments, the alliance with South Korea. Yeah. And you know, there's been a lot of concern in the town about U.S. troop presence and what people say alliance equities on the negotiating table, yeah. uh, especially after the military exercise issue in Singapore. Can you talk a little about how your subcommittee views that, how you view that, and how the Congress writ large views this? Look, I think uh, as we have reiterated through multiple pieces of legislation, uh, the decisions as it relates to North Korea, uh, you know, obviously South Korea, the United States, and the alliance, uh, the, the strength of this alliance is, is, is foremost uh, and critical. Uh, the, the, the alliance, uh, the decisions we make, the choices we, uh, we pursue uh, uh, go through the alliance. And uh, I think the alliance is strong. Uh, the alliance uh, is, it can always be stronger. We can always work to do a better job. Uh, but I think making decisions and choices and actions uh, through the alliance remains, uh, remains the paramount uh, goal. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, as it relates to Japan, uh, Korea, and the United States, that relationship is absolutely critical. Uh, the, the three nations and the equities involved by all three uh, can, can, I think, really provide the leadership that is necessary as we address what is uh, this major concern. I mean, the, the, the tragedy of the, the, the people of North Korea face, 
the opportunities that have been shut off because of Kim Jong-un's decisions, uh, the risk of proliferation throughout the region. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these need to be addressed, and they can only be addressed by a strong U.S.-Korea, Korea-U.S. alliance, and the relationship between the U.S., Japan, and Korea. No, makes sense. And uh, I'm getting the, the five-minute sign from your staff here, and <laughs> both of us being former staffers know how important staff are in keeping members on track and on time. So um, uh, just let me ask you, you, you touched on it a little bit on your broader piece of legislation and perhaps ask you to talk a little bit about how North Korea, the North Korea problem, uh, fits into the broader Asia-Pacific strategy as you see it on Capitol Hill. Yeah, that's right. And I do want to say uh, on the broader legislation, Aria, uh, really to have this kind of legislation move with the strong bipartisan support re we, we had for it really does show the strength of the U.S. Congress when it acts together. Uh, you know, we had a, a, a three different pillars in this legislation, uh, a, a security pillar, an economic pillar, rule of law, democracy, human rights, as we talked about, uh, $10 billion worth of authorizations over five years. Uh, Senator Markey, Senator Kane, Senator Kuhn, Senator Cardin, all a part of this, along with Graham and Rubio uh, on, on the Republican side. And it shows that major legislation can still be done in a bipartisan fa fashion that could transform our relationship in uh, an area of the world that has 50% global GDP, 50% global population. That being said, within this, of course, is the acknowledgement we have to our, our treaty and compact allies, uh, the, the work that we can be doing on counterterrorism, uh, maritime domain awareness, South China Sea concerns, uh, the relationship between the United States, Taiwan, the relationship between Taiwan and the broader uh, community of nations, uh, and uh, how we can proceed with that, the, the reiteration of our approach to denuclearization de in ARIA as it relates to North Korea, proliferation concerns in ARIA mm -hmm. as it relates to the region. So uh, I think providing a solution uh, and finding that solution in North Korea uh, would really is the goal of ARIA through its sort of economic and security uh, opportunities. You know, it's the, the opportunities the people of North Korea have are so significant so significant if, if they are able to break away from the tyrannous leadership that they have now. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. We've talked about it many times that uh, South Korea was not as, uh, the opportunities in South Korea weren't as great as they were to the north. Uh, but, uh, how, how, I mean, anybody, gosh, how that has changed today. And anybody would look at this opportunity and say, how can we help the people of North Korea overcome clearly uh, what doesn't represent their best interests. Well, let me, um, let me uh, get to the final question here because uh, I know you're short on time. And it um, dovetails a little bit with uh, what you said about South Korea, South Korean politics, but I want to bring it home a little. Yeah. Uh, in that I, I always get the question uh, from South Koreans how this issue plays in domestic politics. Yeah. So I'm wondering how this plays among your constituents in Colorado. And does this issue break through? Is this a domestic political issue? Right. Oh, it mark. is. I can tell you, I mean, when, when missiles were flying, everyone was talking about it. Uh, and, and people knew exactly what was happening. And they were concerned mm -hmm. when there was, you know, rhetoric of fire and fury or this or that. I mean, everybody was engaged and in tune with what was happening. And they still know now that we face a significant threat in North Korea. And I go home and people talk, what do you think is going to happen in Singapore? What do you think is going to happen in Hanoi? What happens now? So uh, this is not one of those issues that the American people have tuned out or tuned off. They very much have paid attention to uh, this issue. And why have they paid attention to it? Because there is a, a, a rogue leader in North Korea 
who has said he will use a uh, nuclear weapon against the United mm -hmm. States. And that is sharpened. That is sharpened, sharpened and pretty clear. And that is why we have to not just get this halfway right, but we get this solved once and for all. Well, on that note, let me just thank you. And also, I was remiss in the introduction, especially in terms of Colorado politics, and saying that you were endorsed by John Elway, that I saw. Right. So, you know, that's, as a Stanford guy, that's a high honor. That, so, yeah. uh, the closest I'll ever be to being a professional football player. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but thanks again. Thanks for your leadership. Thanks for coming and spending some time with us at CSIS. And thanks for the, the personal uh, touch you showed me when uh, I was on hard times. Thanks, thanks Senator. Thank Appreciate you it. Thank you. thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.